0: We will be continuing this morning in the book of 1 Peter, we're going to have a little moment of devotion, a little moment of learning before we do that, and we're going to start out by looking at Luke chapter 24. This really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we're studying, but it's a, a good way to start off the Lord's day here realizing the importance of God's Word. That's what I want to get across to you this morning in our little moment of devotion here, our moment of learning, a lesson about how important God's Word is. So Val, I'm going to have you read for us the first eight verses of Luke chapter 24. Listen carefully.
1: But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared and they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day
0: rise again. And they remembered his words. Okay. In this passage here, on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, we see the women, the faithful women, come into the tomb. In the providence of God, they were not able to embalm his body on Friday, on the sixth day, uh, because the Sabbath starts at sundown. They didn't have enough time. So by the providence of God, they were going to have to go back to the tomb. And of course, they would not have looked into the tomb and seen that Jesus was not there if it wasn't for this providential act of God. I noticed they went, they saw an empty tomb and they were perplexed they found the stone rolled away and when they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus and the scripture goes on to say they were perplexed about this so the the only evidence they see here is the empty tomb that's why we don't preach the empty tomb. But This is all they saw was the empty tomb. And we read in other accounts that they thought the body had been stolen. And Mary even thought the gardener had moved it. So that's how they interpreted the, the empty tomb. This body's been stolen. If things aren't bad enough, now they're even worse. We don't even know where his body is. But then we had this angel come. And the angel said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? And then in verse 6, It says, He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. So we see the futility of trying to interpret anything without God's Word. They went to the tomb. All they saw was it was empty. They tried to figure it out on their own and they were dead wrong. Just like anybody else who tries to figure anything out without the revelation of God. Using reason only without the revelation of God, you're going to be dead wrong. But then when the angels said... Remember what he told you, that he was going to be crucified, dead, and buried, and rise again on the third day. And they remembered him saying this, and they believed. They only knew the truth in the light of the revelation of God. So we see the futility of using reason alone. Now you have to use reason, but don't use reason apart from the word of God and trying to figure things out. They were absolutely dumbfounded until they remembered what Jesus had said. So let us remember the importance of using God's Word to try to figure things out. Anybody have anything to add to that?
1: Bill, I'll just add that I think that the the source of most of the problems not only in theology and in churches but in every field of endeavor in human life is because People fail to use scripture as the starting point for all knowledge. There can't be two fountainheads of knowledge. There's only, that can both be right. There can only be one. And, uh, the inconsistency of Christians and churches who, say, for example, are all in with the inerrancy of scripture and right doctrine when it comes to theology, but when it comes to everything else, they just throw it out the door and they're happy to listen to humanists and atheists and communists and everybody else about Everything else is beside. Rant
0: over. Yes. So always sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's where our thinking begins. Any anything else? Okay. With that in mind, that how important this word is that we read and study. Let's turn now to First Peter, chapter three. And to bring you up to date, last week we saw how we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. And always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. That's 315, verse 3 315. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always being prepared to make a defense. The word for defense there is the Greek word apologia. 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 Is it apologia or apologia? I can't can't remember.
1: Apologia. Greek? (laughs) What? Apologia. Yeah.
0: I've heard that too. But anyway, that's where we get the word apologetics from. I've heard it pronounced different ways. But anyway, the the command is to always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. And so what I stressed last week is you don't do it ad hoc. You have it ready. You have a testimony ready. You have a statement of faith ready. You have a defense ready for anyone that comes up to you Uh, and ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And it says to anyone, I don't care if they have three PhDs in philosophy, you are to be ready to with your defense. Because I tell you what, one of the basic questions in philosophy is, why are we here? Philosophers cannot answer that question without God's word. We can. We can tell them we're here because God made us. In fact, that's the very first thing I ever learned from my parents. Who made me? God made me, and guess what? That makes me a better philosopher than you are, even with your three PhDs in philosophy. So yeah, we are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. So that brings us up to, uh, and then he tells us in verse 17, in effect... You make sure that you're suffering for my sake and not for your own foolishness. I've seen Christians suffer for their own foolishness. We don't want to do that. We want to suffer for Christ. It's a joy to suffer for Christ. It's a shame to suffer for foolishness. All right, any questions or comments um, for uh so far? Okay, that brings us up to um, today's lesson, beginning in verse eighteen. And um, Michelle, will you read I, I haven't assigned three eighteen have I to anyone? Okay. Michelle if you'll read eighteen through let's just go through um, let's just concentrate on eighteen right now. Just first okay. Peter three eighteen.
2: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit.
0: Okay, Um, that is that verse is packed with uh, with theology. There are things in here that you must believe if you are going to be a Christian. So we are going to spend a little bit of time unpacking this verse. For Christ suffered once for sins. That's what we're going to look at first. There's three things in here. In verse 18, Peter gives information on the following about the crucifixion of Christ. It is a one-time event. That is first, and that's what we're going to talk about first. And then we're going to talk about it is substitutionary. That's number two. And then number three, it is reconciling. All right, this is never to be repeated. If this is the only place in Scripture it said that Christ also suffered once for sins, that would be sufficient. But it is not the only time. Who has Hebrews 9 assigned to him?
2: Alright,
0: read for us verse 9, uh, verse 12.
2: Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in, entered in once into the holy place, having atta- obtained eternal redemption for us.
0: He entered once, one time, into the holy place. Okay? And also, Donna, for us read verses 25 through 28.
2: Not, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now... Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation.
0: Now how in the world could anybody read that and not see that Christ suffered once? One time. One time only. Now the uh, Roman Catholic Mass says that he suffers every time. He is re-sacrificed every time they have the Mass. And Mike, if I say anything wrong, let me know. Because you know this stuff. Roman Catholic, Roman those, yeah, says it a lot better than
3: I do. <laughs> yeah. But,
0: um, and so, yeah. they uh, They actually on the Roman Catholic Mass, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the, the wine or grape juice or whatever people use should be wine. That's what's appointed. Uh, when the wine is drunk, that is actually the blood of Christ. Um, it's called transformation. Um, it's transubstantiation because it is trans. The substance is transformed. The substance actually changes, even though the form doesn't. That's why it still tastes like bread and wine. But the substance actually changes, according to Roman Catholic theology, and Christ is re-crucified every time they have the Mass. That is in direct contradiction to Scripture, which says over and over again that Christ died once. If you look at 10 10, it says of Hebrews, it says, And that by will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12 When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. Scripture could not be clearer. One time. It is a one-time sacrifice. And John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, makes this statement that I thought was very good. He says in here that Protestants rightly contend that the satisfaction of Christ is the only satisfaction for sin and is so perfect and final that it leaves no penal liability for any sin of the believer. So if it does that, which Scripture does teach, there's no reason for him to be crucified again.
4: Yeah, and then, I think most uh, Protestants think that, that the Catholics are just remembering the sacrifice. They're not. They say it's exactly the same. Right.
1: I think some of the Roman Catholics would say that they are just remembering
4: then they are but, Roman Catholics
1: but, <laughs> but they're also saying you're required to have that sacrifice for uh, uh, atonement of your sins. so if you miss the mass you're in trouble.
4: Well yeah I mean this, this devastates the, the core of their religion is like devastated
0: by those verses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to remember. Val, Val kind of brings us up that what the church teaches is not necessarily what a lot of the people believe. Oh, yeah, the Roman Catholics they are, they are in ignorance of what the church believes, just like there's a lot of Protestants. My mother that are did ignorant. not believe in the transubstantiation.
4: She yeah. didn't. She never went to confession. Well, yeah, she would have been burnt. I, I used to tell her, you know back in the 15th century, you you'd be part of the state for what you believe in. Yeah. And, but, you know, she married my dad, a Roman Catholic. So. Yep.
1: Yes. The other thing is that um, if I remember my history of Christian doctrine correctly, it was almost a thousand years before that teaching of transubstantiation <laughs> was codified as a required belief or a formal belief. And this was before there was anything other than the Catholic Church not the Roman Catholic Church but the Catholic Church broadly speaking yeah. and so different Christian groups in different parts of Europe and Middle East had different thoughts about what was going on in the Lord's Supper so even in the Catholic Church for a thousand years there was no firm belief in this across the
4: board like they're supposed to is today yeah it was they they make a distinction between doctrine and dogma it was doctrine for ever since the fourth century but they didn't you didn't have to believe in it until the dogma was settled. So, so. Well, my point is it wasn't doctrine in
1: every corner of the Catholic Church. No. In no. the Eastern no. Church and Eastern places there were different perspectives on
0: it. So it's what we have in Roman Catholicism and every other branch of the invisible church is that a lot of the people don't even know what their official doctrine or dogma is, um, including... The Reformed Church, there's a lot of Christians in the Reformed Church that can't tell you the five points of Calvinism. And so, yes, there are a lot of people in the Roman Catholic Church that do not hold a transubstantiation, even though um, even though that's an official dogma dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. Which is clearly wrong, not according to Scripture. And then on one other place, um I wanted to read. It says, Our definition of atonement must be derived from the atonement which the Scripture speaks. And the atonement of which the Scripture speaks is the vicarious obedience, expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption performed by the Lord of glory when once for all we purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. So... Um, Christ accomplished all those big words (laughs) that uh, John Murray just said. So, um, once for all, big thing is once for all. We don't have to worry. Our sins are atoned for forever. Okay, any other comments on the one-time event of Christ offering up of himself? All right, the second thing there is it is substitutionary. Christ became our substitute. Uh let's have um does somebody have Romans 5? Okay, good. All right. Um let's have First Corinthians five, seventeen through twenty-one read Force, to show the substitutionary atonement. Sorry about that. That's all right. We're all. Everybody else is getting to it too. Chapter five, verses Second Corinthians five seventeen through twenty one. is not
3: working good. First Corinthians.
0: No, Second Corinthians. Well, that was right. Start with. Well, it first. It It is second. I don't think there is a First Corinthians five something. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, make that a Second Corinthians. Make make that two Corinthians. Two Corinthians, yeah.
3: <clears throat> five seventeen through twenty one. Therefore, yeah. if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The the new has come. All that is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made, us, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
0: All right, that last verse really shows it clearly, the substitutionary nature of the atonement. And it also shows the third thing, the reconciliation. But when it says in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So he took our place as our substitute. And that's taught clearly in other places in Scripture too. But uh, And one of those is Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. So we'll have that read. I have
2: that one. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, but a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of all of us.
0: Our sins have been laid on Jesus Christ. Those verses clearly teach. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for us. So what we deserve fell upon Jesus Christ. Only though if you're a Christian, only if you profess faith in him, otherwise you bear your own sins. All right, so anything else on the substitutionary atonement taught in this verse. These, like I say, this is the very heart of the gospel in this verse. That Jesus' atonement is sufficient one time, never to be repeated, and that it is a substitute, that he was our substitute there on the cross appointed by God to take our place. So we've seen he suffered once for sins, and um, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the substitutionary of the righteous for the unrighteous, and then the third thing that he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to God. So it is reconciling, reconciling, reconciling. Yes. So um, Romans five ten through eleven. <coughs> shows that clearly, that it is reconciling. Does anyone have Romans 5, 10-11? Okay, ready? For if, while we were enemies,
3: we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled,
2: shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconcilia- reconciliation.
0: We have received reconciliation through Christ by his work on the cross. And then in Colossians 1, 21 through
2: 22. And and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach.
0: All right. We were alienated and hostile. We were hostile to God in our minds, and doing evil deeds but God, Christ has reconciled us to him and now the beauty of that is that we are now presented by Christ to the Father as being blameless and above reproach God does not see your sin when God sees you he sees you as a person that is above reproach and blameless you ever seen the bumper sticker Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. That's a lie. Christians are perfect in God's eyes because Jesus Christ's atonement is perfect. And whatever God sees in Jesus Christ, He sees in us. We are fully reconciled. No condemnation. One sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, totally reconciling us to God. Very clearly the gospel. Now we had to be reconciled. You remember what happened in Genesis 3, if you want to turn there for just a minute. This is what necessitated it. And we all know what necessitated it was the fact that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. Eve, it didn't matter whether she ate or not. Adam was our covenant head. He ate and then because of that we are imputed with his guilt and we inherit this corruption. And so God drove the man out. Now Adam had been charged with guarding the garden. It was his job to keep the serpent out. He didn't do it. He sinned. He aligned himself with the serpent. serpent. So in verse 24 of chapter 3, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a devastating verse. This is a verse we don't really think too much about. First of all, man was entrusted to guard the garden against the serpent. He didn't do it. He aligned himself with the serpent instead. So God drove out the man. He drove him out, and then he placed these mighty angels, these cherubim, and a flaming sword to keep the man out. So now man, instead of guarding the garden, the garden has to be guarded against him so that he won't return and try to eat of the tree of life. We were supposed to be in there, but because of what Adam did, God has to guard the garden from man. So that's the kind of reconciliation we need. It's a shame that the garden had to be guarded against Adam. That's exactly what happened. Okay. Any comments on anything so far? All right. Now in your notes it says Peter states that Christ was put to death in the flesh. Okay, a little bit of background theology for this verse. Let me find my place here. It says uh He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right. Now, got to remember a couple of things. God is composed of three persons, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. God is not composed of anything. God is simple. God is three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all fully God. God is without composition. He's simple. Christ, Jesus, uh, The Son is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Spirit's is fully God. Okay? Now, <clears throat> Jesus, or rather the Son of God, in the fullness of time became flesh. He took on a human body. So Christ is composed of The second person of the Trinity taking on the body of man. All right. Second person of the Trinity. So he's one person he's still one person. He's God's son. But he also is has a human nature. He's two natures and one person. Now, if I'm wrong on any of this, somebody tell me. But the way I see it, it says that Christ was put to death in the flesh. His human nature died. God the Son doesn't die. God cannot change. He says that in Malachi 3, I, Jehovah, do not change. So He was put to death in the flesh. His human nature died. Okay? So He's put to death in the flesh. And then it says he was made alive. Does your translation say in the spirit? Mm -hmm. The translation we had read said by the spirit. I believe the correct translation is by the spirit. Now in the Greek that preposition is not in there. It is determined by the noun case. It's in the dative case which means it can be by the Spirit or in the Spirit. So you just kind of have to use your background, use your theology that you know, use the context. I think it has to be by the Spirit because if you're made alive in the Spirit, you have to have been dead in the Spirit. Christ's Spirit did not die. He committed it to the Father. That
3: kind
0: of question. Okay. All right. So, so, so let me finish this. Okay. So in my, the way I interpret this is that Christ was made alive by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Go ahead. So you said God is not composed. I get
4: that. Right. But you said the Son is composed.
0: The, the, our Messiah is composed. He's two natures, which I, I would say that would be composition. Even though the Son of God is still not composed. The Messiah is the God-man. He's fully God and fully man. If you don't think that's composition, that's not, I'm not going to argue with you. Maybe it's better to say that he was...
1: Yeah. I just they generally say he added the human nature.
0: Right. He added, he didn't subtract anything. Right. Yeah, Joshua? He was, he was truly united
1: to his human body and everything that's associated with man. To say that he was composed kind of mingles the two together. Yeah, you're right. And so then you get into yeah. ancient heresies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and our, our confession just dawned I mean, Our confession says there's no composition. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. You calm me down. You were right. He is not composed. He is... There's no mixture. Okay. I may not be teaching that, Sunday Since, <laughs> All right. yeah, sometimes you just you just got to think things through. <clears throat> okay, I appreciate that, guys. Okay. Now, he was made alive by the Spirit in your notes, <clears throat> referring to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that brings us to the end of verse eighteen, which I guess is the only verse we're gonna. Today. So what, what does the blank, did you go over that sentence in the paper? Um, Peter it? states that Christ was put to death in the flesh, this would refer to his human nature, right. the Son of God did not die. Okay. Peter states that Christ was made alive by the Spirit,
2: oh, okay. referring to
0: the Holy Spirit. Yes, yeah, so Christ is not composed. Sorry about that. Okay, um, now next week we'll be coming to verse 20 and 21. And there are commentators that... Uh, excuse me, verses 19 and 20. There are multiple commentators that say this is the hardest passage in the New Testament. To interpret and one of those and Greg Monson agrees with that view so uh, we will be looking at that next week and um, there's three interpretations that I'll mention and that uh, in his commentary Edmund Clowney mentions the three and we'll look at those three real quick And then I will give you Bonson's interpretation, which I believe is the right one. All right, anybody have anything to add to to what we've talked about today? Okay. Um, Bud, will you close us in prayer today?